The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall, the pain peeling off the wall. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is championship-winning soccer player Robbie Rogers, whose career, as many of you may know, has included competing in the U.S. Olympics. In China, Robbie's new book is coming out to play. Welcome to the show, Robbie. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, in February 2013, and I'm quoting this, when championship-winning Soccer player Robbie Rogers came out as gay via a letter that he posted online. He made sports history. That's you. After having kept your sexuality a secret for 25 years, you became the first openly gay man to compete in a major North American professional sports league. Okay. So my question is, Robbie, first, why February 2013? I mean, here you are, a young gay man hiding in the closet for... 25 years. Yeah. Uh, why'd you come out then? Um, well, I first came out to my family about four months before that. And um, you know, I, I guess, I mean, it's, it's a pretty long answer, but it, just my whole life really struggling and uh, being depressed and thinking that soccer was going to, and the success of soccer and playing overseas and going to Olympics and all that stuff, I thought that it would mask that and that I would never have to deal with it. But um, you know, even though I got to do things that I dreamed of when I was younger, didn't really fill that void. And, and I was you know, felt so depressed and isolated. And at one point when I was 25, it was like November, so like two years ago, I, I was, you know, I just felt like I had to make a change. So that's when I came out to my family. And um, the next few months, I, I thought, about, should I come out publicly? Should I let people just find out organically? Or what should I do? And, and so I started writing, and I, I wrote what I eventually posted on social media. But uh, I was, it was really spontaneous, actually. I was, you know, spoke to my mom that morning, didn't even think about it, and uh, I just felt like I still was keeping things from, not my family and friends, but from a lot of different, you know, especially the soccer world, and people asking me what I was going to do next, and all that stuff. So I just felt like, you know, you know I'm just going to free myself from this, and I just posted that letter and, and um, turned off my phone, shut my laptop, and didn't, you know, I kind of just was freed from, from that uh, secret. So the feeling was once you did it, you came out online. You felt yeah. good. You, you had. It sounds like you were just compelled to do it emotionally. Yeah, you just had enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I just had enough, and, and uh, you know, I felt that way for a really long time. So, just got to the point where I was like, you know, I don't even care how people react. I just want to like start from from ground zero and to just kind of get that weight off my shoulders. What was interesting when I was reading your book, and I think this is true of many of the young gay people that you know, as a social worker that I have a lot yeah. of contact with, is that really struck me, you said, you know, my fears of coming out were 
internal. I internalized the fear of how everybody would react to me. And then what actually happened externally was not what you thought. You know, your family supported you, your friends supported you, even people in this, you know, macho sports world, I'm calling it, supported you as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think, yeah, I did internalize things, but it was just mainly, you know, growing up in a very Catholic conservative family and, and growing up in the sports world, you know, you hear things every day. You know, you hear things you have, there's people around you having discussions about how someone could even be gay and how disgusting that is. So you grow up in that environment, and, you know, obviously you learn to hate yourself and you think that it's not okay. So when you just constantly are hearing these things and, you know, little scars just chipping away at you and, and or sorry, creating scars internally, and, and it just it, it creates a huge problem for yourself and, and, you know, a lot of depression, again, isolation. So, you know, I think things are changing a lot. I think uh, our society is changing a lot. I think the sports world is changing a lot. But, you know, after this book's been out for a few weeks now, and I've had a lot of people read it and reach out to me and say they felt the exact same way and, and have been able to relate. And not just gay men and women, to be honest, but people from all walks of life that have had, you know, some kind of uh, coming out experience, whether it's, you know, changing religions and having to their family or having a divorce or just so many different things. So I think people can relate to, to isolation, depression, and uh Relate to having to keep such a secret, people. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think uh, I think you mentioned this in the book as well. I mean, secrets yeah. kind of crush us, no matter what the secret yeah. is, whether it's I'm gay or I got divorced or yeah. I'm illegitimate or whatever it is, yeah. or what. And and those kinds of things really affect all of us in a very negative way if we continue to hide hiding. But can I ask you, when did you yeah. feel as a young man that, or you felt that you were gay, that you weren't yeah. straight, that you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 like it's kind of a little difficult to answer. Just I, I mean, I think I 100% knew and realized when I was probably like 14 years old when I was going to high school. But you know, interested, like it was really strange when I was young. I would hear the word fag or gay or you know, fairy or different words like that, and I just became like I would cringe and I was so sensitive to those words. And you know, I talked about in the book you know, different experiences that I had with my dad or my mom or different things like that. And you know, I must not have you know, I didn't know exactly what was going on. I mean, I was still trying to figure out what kind of cereal I want in the morning. But I would hear those words, and I would be so afraid and felt like, you know, maybe I'm, this is what I am, or why, why, why are these directed to this person? Why am I depressed? Why am I going inside now? Why am I, you know, I, it just felt, there were so many things that came up when I heard those words. So I must have known, you know, subconsciously or on a genetic level or something that I was different than my brothers and sisters. Um, but, again, sorry to create such a long answer, but I think I, definitely knew when I was going to high school. Yeah, high school, which makes sense. I mean, that's puberty at its, you know. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I think um, one of the things you should also, I wanted you to kind of talk about is that all this hiding involves a lot of energy. I mean, and here you are playing sports, you know, very, you know, successful, doing well in school, all of this, and at the same time taking all this energy to hide who you are and to pretend that you are straight. You talk... um, because uh, I think a lot of young gay people do that, pretend yeah. you, you gave the example, and I've seen this so many times, like you were, and I'm putting dating in, in quotes, yeah. like this model, yeah, and, but it was course. great because she traveled all around the world. You really didn't have to spend yeah. too much time together. Yeah. 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 It, it's, uh, it's, it's awful. I mean, it's so sad. And I, you know, obviously I've read, read the book so many times. I had to reread the chapters and work on stuff with Eric and, and reread letters that I wrote. Um, and it's just, it's, it's depressing for me then to reread through all this stuff. It's so sad that I felt that way, and to think that you know there's people still struggling with that. So, um, I mean, I went I, again. I dated girls. I, I self denial, and um, 
it wasn't really until I just accepted myself and loved myself that I could be honest with everyone else. You know, it didn't matter what anyone else said to me. It was about it was all about me just coming to terms with who I was and how I was created. So when you came out to your family, yeah. and let's talk about your mother, because I think moms yeah. know anyway, uh, which you kind of, I think, said yeah. in the book, your mom and your yeah. sister had been talking, well, is Robbie could be gay, not yeah. sure, but maybe he is. So what was yeah. that conversation like? Because I would imagine that a whole, I call it a veil, maybe it's a wall gets lifted yeah, so wall. that you can, you know, you, they love you, you love them, but yet you can't really be who yeah. you are. So. No. Yeah, talk about yeah, I, I would say a huge wall that, like, just separated us, you know, emotionally and being able to connect with each other. Um, you know, I told my mom, and she's one of the first people I told, and she, I was, I mean, I was, like, shaking right until I was so afraid. But, you know, she brought me to tears. She was so loving and supportive and just wanted, like, okay, I'm, she was really sad. She was sad that she couldn't be there to help me through this stuff and that I did it all alone which I had to do anyways, you know, for me, my process was to do it alone and to, you know, figure it out by myself. But What did you really think sad. your mother could do? I mean, you said you were shaking, you were terrified. Yeah. Where, I thought okay, that she... let's get in. I want to get, you know, as a social worker, and I'm really, and really, really interested because what was she going to do to you? Or what was, I mean, there what was did a lot of think? things that went, there was everything went through my head, you know, that she would not accept me and, and, you know, uh, just kind of that our relationship might end. Um, one thing that I worried about that is that she would think like, oh, I have to think about this. Like things are different now. Like I, I just, I wanted to be still her son and the same person. And I am the same person. Um, so, I mean, there were so many things that went through my head and obviously the worst probably went through my head first. Um, but she was the exact opposite. She was the exact opposite. And she's, again, from this experience, she's changed a lot too. You know, she was not for same-sex marriage. She didn't support that kind of stuff, but now she can't wait to go to my wedding. So, um, you know, things change very quickly when you have a personal experience and when you love someone so much. Yeah, I th- obviously, I think that's very true, and I think, uh, but there's another piece to this, like your dad. I mean, I, th- I think that yeah. men sometimes have more, de- and I'm. This is a big generalization. Not that that, that men have more difficulty in yeah. accepting differences yeah. and, and this a little more rigid thinking, whatever it is. And yeah. so, um, what was it like when you told your dad or when you yeah, talked was, to your dad? Yeah, it was hard for me to tell my dad because you know, I think all boys want to grow up and be like their dad. You know, they want to be able to connect with him on every level. And for me, you know, I realized that in a certain way, I'm very different. And so to come out to my dad was, was extremely tough. Um, you know, he accepted me from the second I told him and loves me and goes to all my games and comes to my trainings. He's so supportive. But uh, it, was, it was hard just for me to tell him because of those things. And um, you know, he was just mad that I didn't tell him earlier. Not mad, but like, you know, you could have told me earlier so I could have helped you with this. Yeah. And also, you know, when you love someone, I'm thinking of your parents, you know, you feel like, well, I love you. You don't trust me. I mean, that I think the issue of trust, probably trust issue of trust comes up on both sides. But, you yep. know, what is it in me as yeah. a parent that wouldn't allow you to just share that with me? Yeah. My dad asked me, you know, you know, why were you afraid to tell me or certain other people? And I had to, you know, talk to that kind of stuff. And, and again, like this, I have to remind people that you know, this not about them. It's about me and my struggles. And that um, I had to, again, come to terms with myself. It, it didn't, again, it didn't matter if my dad was sort of the same sex man or he was, if he had gay friends, because, you know, I had family members that did. Um, but I just, I, yeah, I just really struggled. And, and again, it was because of all the things that I heard when I was younger and in the sports world, the changing rooms and stadiums, uh, all around the world that, that made me think that I wasn't good enough. So, 
it, it, it wasn't about uh, you know other people and who they were. It was really just what I struggled with. Yeah, it's all about you. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Which it should be. With, with coming out, I think it is, yeah. Yeah. So what would you... Well, what would you say to young people? I mean, especially young people, I think in athletics, maybe it's more difficult. I mean, there is that, I can't, I don't, I can't think of another term, but macho or, you know, it's yeah. mad testosterone and, um, you know, you've got to be a man and that means sleeping with women and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. how does that fit in? I mean, is it, do you think it's easier for, say, someone like Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple, he comes out, I didn't even hear, to, okay, Tim Cook is gay, let's go on to next, I want him to make money yeah. for me, that's really what I'm <laughs> interested in. Yeah. Uh, I ask a question. I don't know. I mean, there is a stereotype that people expect athletes to be, and I'm obviously not that stereotype. Um, I think in the past, it's been extremely difficult to be an athlete and to be, well, obviously, there's none of us. You know, there's Jason Collins, who retired. There's Michael Sam, who's, you know, working his way into the NFL. And then there's myself, and there's a few other female athletes that play sports. So it's extremely difficult, and you can tell, obviously, because there are none of us. Um, but, you know, I think yeah, I, I would be naive or be uh, irresponsible to say that it's more or less difficult. You know, I've, I've been a professional soccer player my whole life. I, I haven't, you know, run huge companies like Tim Cook. And so, you know, I, 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 would, I don't really want to comment too much on that, but it's, it's, it's difficult. And I think it's getting better. I think that now in the sports world, things are changing. People are more sensitive to not only men and women being gay, but also about like mental health issues and dealing with racism and sexism and, and just so many different issues that go on. So, um, it is tough. It is tough in sports world, and I won't pretend that it's not. But, you know, my experience after coming back has been very positive and, and made me believe that uh, things are changing very quickly. Robbie, can you give us an example, like a specific example, let's yeah, say, yeah, of friends, or sports, you know, yeah. colleagues, sports colleagues? Sports. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of my good friends, and he plays on our team, Land Donovan, he's been reading my book, and he actually just finished it last night. And, you know, after we won the championship, he's like, yeah, I've loved just having you on our team, and, and I knew him before I came out. And he's like, you know, I've been reading your book through this whole process, and it's so amazing to get to know you and, and be playing with you on the same side of the field and to have, uh, you know, someone in the locker room that you know, obviously is very similar and is an athlete but is, is different in his own way. And he's like, I think that's what makes um, our, our locker room so strong is we have guys from you know, all different walks of life. And, and, I mean, this is not the discussions that I would have before I uh, – before I came out. Or another example is we'll talk about same-sex marriage, marriage equality, you know, while we're showering with each other. And it's just like, yep, this is definitely not a conversation I would be having three years ago. <laughs> yeah, and think how sad it is for, uh, or at, at, for people who, for gay men and women who, who can't get married or who, you yeah. know, who it, it's... Or it can be stoned to death for living in a country and being gay. I mean, it's, 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 there's a lot that needs to change before, you know, people, before it's not an issue. So what do we tell young people? How do we, you know, change? Yeah. I always I think... Yeah, that's, that's the tough yeah. part. It's like how, how do you change the environment? Um, first off, I think you tell young people to, if they're struggling with anything, to go speak with someone, you know, someone away from their family, from their school, from their team, that can, someone that can just hear their thoughts and their emotions and to just talk things through with them because I didn't do that and it's extremely unhealthy and to not do that for 25 years just creates baggage. So I would go back to myself and tell, tell myself to, you know, do that. Also, you know, I would tell them, you know, there's GSAs in high schools that they can be part of if they're, if they're you know, in high school or younger. Uh, um, but then to tell, you know, other you know, people that aren't struggling with that, that are, you know, either straight or whatever, that are on their teams, that, you know, you probably have someone on your team that's 
struggling with something like this, or you probably have a gay person on your team, just to be sensitive, be more sensitive to people around you, and, and just to, you know, you can banter and, and joke about things, but you have to be sensitive to what you're saying. So I actually have to get going. Sorry. You do? <laughs> yeah, I have to get going. Sorry. <laughs> so I we're going to have to say goodbye. Conversation. Well, all right, <laughs> well, I'll just recommend the book, Coming Out to Play. It was a pleasure. We're going to, then okay. we'll take a short Thank break you. right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America Variety World Talk Radio. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. It's time to take a new look at some of life's changing moments. It's time to listen to an expert who has been there and can provide insight through experience, studies, and enlightening guests. Tune in to Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets. Host Lindsay Levinson takes a look at relationships, parenting, health and wellness, divorce, depression, sexuality, philanthropy, and mental health. You'll look at everything you know in a different way. Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets, airs Wednesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Frank Schaefer. Frank Schaefer is a best-selling New York Times author, a movie director, a blogger, a speaker, a fine artist. I'm going to name them all, Frank. Father of three, grandfather of five, and a survivor of polio. And I also want to add a really good storyteller. And 
We're going to be talking about his new book, Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God, How to Give Love, Create Beauty, and Find Peace. Welcome to the show, Frank. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Okay, well, I just, you know, went online. Your book has been described as a celebration of paradox, and I know you talk about that, too, obviously, in the title. I'm an atheist, but I don't believe in God. But you were raised, as most of us know, as a Christian evangelical, in a Christian evangelical family, flying around in, was it Jerry Farwell's private jet? Yeah, Jerry Farwell's jet when we were out on the road in the 70s and 80s speaking to all these huge Christian groups. Okay, so you're preaching the Word of God. Uh, I say saving people like me from maybe hell and damnation. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, but what happened? What happened? What changed you? Was it, I mean, this is obviously tongue-in-cheek, but a divine revelation, or did you go over to the other side? Well, I guess you really didn't because it's the paradox that we're talking about. So, okay, so what happened? Well, you know, as you mentioned, I was raised as the son of an evangelical minister who, when I was a young child living in Switzerland, where I grew up in a ministry called Labrie Fellowship in the 50s and 60s, he was relatively unknown except to a few other evangelicals. Then he wrote some books like The God Who Is There and Escape from Reason that were published in the UK and also in the States. And all of a sudden, within evangelical circles, he got better known. By the time I was a teenager... And uh, the issue of abortion came along after Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court decision legalizing it. He took a stand in uh, that part of the culture war that was very anti-abortion. And so, of course, he then became very popular with the religious right. And at the same time, I made a film series when I was in my late teens and early 20s called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, which featured my dad and also Dr. C. Everett Koop, who went on to become Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General. And that film series and the companion book really was the foundation of what became the evangelical so-called pro-life movement. And so all of a sudden, our families were celebrities within the American, North American evangelical movement, and we were very much tied in with the Republican candidates of the moment, like Jack Kemp, who was a friend of ours, and I used to stay in his home, Bob Dole, Henry Hyde, uh, President Ford. Actually, President Ford's kids were at the Ministry of Labrie babysitting my young daughter uh, back in the day. And so all of a sudden, like a lot of evangelical leaders, we became very much part of the rise of the religious right as it gradually took control of the Republican Party. And, of course, if you fast-forward today, that right now you have this oppositional group to, say, Barack Obama that is typified by the Tea Party. And if you look at those numbers, 70% of them are evangelical right-wingers, uh, Fox News viewers, and so on. Back when I was involved with the movement in the 70s and the 80s, this is, you know, before Fox News and so forth, but um, it was very much the beginning of the movement that right now is, is the religious right and so on. Um, <clears throat> when I got out was after my dad died in 1984, and uh, I began to really realize that I had wanted to be an artist and a filmmaker, and I had been raised in an evangelical community, but it wasn't about right-wing politics. Um, for better or worse, it was about reaching out to what we regarded as the lost, quote-unquote, but it wasn't about winning elections and so forth. And the more I lived in the States, uh, because I'd been raised in Europe by Americans, but nevertheless hadn't lived here, when I moved here in 1980, the more I lived in the States, the less I began to buy 
our right-wing cultural analysis of America. As a kind of people like, I just want to, I got to just step back because what you said, you know, your father died and then everything changed for you. So, yeah. like, is that what had to happen for you? I mean, here you were kind of on your, you're doing the good works because of your father? I mean, you just sort of followed blindly, or did you really feel it, or were you too young, or, you know, like emotionally, what happened? He died, and you felt you were free, and you, now you could kind of go on and, and follow your own path? Well, a little bit of all of the above. You know, these things kind of evolve. I mean, as a young person, you sort of accept what you're given, of course, don't you, when you're a child. And then when I began to work with Dad, a mixture of kind of greed, because there was a lot of money in the God business, access to power. It's a very sexy thing to be landing in Washington, D.C. and have Jack Kemp send a limo to the airport for you, and he's a vice presidential candidate, and on and on and on. Um, and as a young man, I kind of accepted this idea that, you know, that you find in the British royal family and the American mafia, and that is that nepotism is a normal thing. And we weren't the only family doing that. And, you know, Jerry Falwell had his son, who now runs the college he founded, Pat Robertson, who founded the 700 Club Christian television program. His kid came in and took over. Dr. Dobson, a focus on the family, half his family are on the payroll. This kind of nepotistic following along. But as I went from teenagerhood into being a young man and really tried to think of my future, I started to realize that I had landed in a camp, both politically, religiously, philosophically, that I really did not agree with. So the choice became clear. Keep on making the big bucks in the God business or get out and follow what I felt was really my own individual vision of things, which gradually evolved politically. But for a start, you know, when it came to movies, I wanted to make films that weren't aimed at a Christian market. When it came to my family, I did not want to be a Christian celebrity, quote unquote, running around the country telling other people how to live. And and when it when I looked at who my friends were, which included a lot of gay creative people or secular people or atheists or agnostics, the idea that somehow these guys were the enemy uh, became more and more abhorrent to me. So it wasn't an overnight kind of deconversion. It was a gradual process of shifting my politics and shifting my view of if there was a God, what he or she might want from us. And by the time, you know, I got into my early 30s, I was really beginning to question the whole package, and I just simply left. And so then I went off to Hollywood and made some very second-rate features, which I got jobs directing because I'd cut a reel for my documentaries. And then I was lucky lucky enough in 1990 to write a novel called Portofino, named for the town in Italy, which actually got great reviews and went on and, and got translated into nine languages. And I began a whole second life as a secular, I guess you'd call it, writer, and uh, five novels and about a half a dozen nonfiction works later or more, I'm, I'm still at it. But philosophically, really what happened was almost more aesthetic at first, just how ugly the religious right had become uh, in its homophobia and its anti-feminism and all the rest. And, I, you know, I, I woke up, and it wasn't one morning, but gradually realizing, look, I haven't signed on for this. I you know, if two lines are forming and at the end of one line you've got Federico Fellini and his movies or Jackson Pollock and his paintings and at the other end of the other line there's Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and these other jokers, you know, I knew which line I wanted to be in and it was not what was leading to the religious right and so I walked. You know, your evolution, I guess that's the word that keeps coming up. So you were evolving, or you did evolve. Right. Of course, you, yeah. 
Uh, but And also you're a man of obviously many talents. But even going back, I mean, you started out, because I just want to kind of get a framework for this. And, like, you, I mean, you were you got married when you were a teenager, right? Well, married is a good word for, for getting my, my, my present wife, Jeannie, that's 45 years ago, pregnant when we were 17 and 18, in the middle of a fundamentalist company, Yeah, so you're having sex way. before marriage. Bad, bad, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I was completely off the wagon when it came to individual behavior, and I guess it was after Jeannie and I did stay together and I got married, and now I had a kid and then a second child to support and all the rest of it, that all of a sudden, you know, when someone came along and said, hey, listen, you know, if you'll make an, an evangelical uh, documentary with your dad and get him involved in the project, uh, that'll be well-funded, by the way, by people like the the uh, family that started uh, Amway, who then went on and were the founders of Blackwater, the security group. So, you know, we're talking far-right support here. Yeah. So um, what about the you know, we'll hand you a credit card and buy you a suit, and, 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 and you know, you can, you can go off and, and work in this environment forever. But when I kind of grew up, which was a slow process, and began to look at the rest of my life, the question was, you know, as I talk about in uh, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, you know, my question was, do I really believe this stuff theologically on one hand and politically? Am I going to spend my whole life in this right-wing netherworld? And clearly, the answer for me was no, and on a personal level, too. You know, the way I was treating my wife, the fact I was on the road all the time, how angry I would come home, uh, the frustration that I was feeling of having somehow walked into this blindly just because I was born to a father who was working in that environment. All these things coalesced into a sense that I really wanted to get out, and so I did. How did Jeannie fit into it, though? Here she marries you, or, you know, your teenagers, and right. this is this evangelical family. This is what she, you know, she go, she's there, you're in Europe, and this is what she's marrying into. And then all of a sudden, you're evolving, you're changing. So how does that affect your relationship with her? And, by the way, and what, you've been together 40-plus years. Right. Uh, yeah, so... What did that do for your relationship or with your relationship? Because that had to change. Sure. Well, it actually made it a lot better. It's the only reason we're still together, really, because the thing is, Jeannie came from a liberal, nominally Roman Catholic San Francisco family. Her dad was a lawyer. When she came to the, our ministry, it was really by chance. She had walked in the door because a friend of hers was there that her sister and her knew, and she was a, a high school student who was getting a, a present from her parents to travel in Europe as a graduation gift, and her sister, who had just graduated from Berkeley, were traveling. They had no clue where they had walked into. It was just a free place to stay that a friend was there, and that's how we met. And so, you know, she, she went with the program. This was, you got to remember, this is the 60s. The, the Beatles were out in India doing their Maharishi Yogi thing. Yeah. Um, people were on all sorts of spiritual treks all over the globe. So so that was cool. You know, she was in a she was in a, a ministry, but it was kind of an open community and uh, not too strict. Although the theology was very evangelical. So for a while, basically, because she had an interest in me and so forth, we I guess she bought into it. But as the years went by and my frustration level grew, and she never obviously got with the program in a full way. Really, it was her urging, for instance, that I bail. Uh, she didn't insist on it, but she was mightily relieved, and so were her parents. And obviously, they'd looked at her as if she had joined some weird cult, which more or less she had in a way from their perspective. And so 
that the the weight on her side of the family was in the direction I went in anyway. So there, you know, far from meeting resistance, there was a sense of relief, and yeah. and that's where we've been ever since. So a lot of support. So it, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. I mean, just to put it bluntly, I guess the fact she was in love with me and we were having babies, you know, people put up with a lot of crap <laughs> yeah. from from family to to stick with the program. That's I mean, true. let's say I'd been in a business she hated, she would have she would have stuck with it. But the thing was, it was really good for us and good for her and good for the children when I got out, and I'm just glad I got out young enough so that I could carve out a completely different life for them and for me. Yeah, what you've done, and I mean, in the book, there's so much, which I want to talk about, actually, your yeah. family, because the babies and your grandfather, and you're actually, I don't want to say surrogate father, but you're a grandfather who really is with the, your kids, one-on-one, your grandchildren, right. two of them, I guess, uh, every day. And, yeah, uh, I mean we're we're very lucky. I've got f- five grandkids. Two live in Europe. My daughter went over there. She married a Finnish American guy who uh, went to Scandinavia. And now they're in Brussels, and I see them on visits. But I'm one of these lucky grandparents that has now three little grandchildren, six, four, and nine months living across the street. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, just before I came in here to do this interview with you, I was feeding my nine-month-old. Uh, daughter, granddaughter Nora, a bottle. Jeannie took her off to meet Jack at preschool to pick him up, and this afternoon I'll go off and get Lucy, who's six in first grade. And both my son and his, my daughter-in-law work, and so Jeannie and I divide our time between childcare and the work I do as a writer, and we're heavily invested. And of course, in why I'm an atheist who believes in God, I tell some of the stories, particularly about Lucy, who uh, is six and and was you know three, four, five years old while I was writing that book. And the time I spent with her, and frankly, the lens through which I look at life these days is really much more my grandchildren than anything theological. So these issues aren't theoretical to me. It all has an impact on family, and how I see things is really as someone who is working with children, trying to make sense of the world for them and with them and enjoy them and the arts and the things we do. You know, this is where my personal interests are, and of course, I don't in, in, in Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, I talk less really about theoretical theology, so to speak, or philosophy or pol- politics, and really more how does this impact my world and the world of my grandchildren, which I think is where most people live. I mean, that's where we, what we all really care about when all said and done, I think. Yeah, well, you, well, the ultimate is the joy and love that you experience with your grandchildren, for instance, or at least that's what you, in one of the stories you talk about in the book. Which, right. And, but... You know, and I think most women, if given the chance, could would tell if we were given the chance, um, would right. tell everyone that we know that, right? I mean, you, right. you talk about yeah, being just those moments with Lucy, with your granddaughter, um, that you experience pure joy just being with her, um, and but. Also, you talk a lot about art because that interests me. Art and beauty, and I mean, I, for me, that's one a very important piece of my life. So, let's talk about what does art mean to you? Because you experience that a lot with your children, your grandchildren, particularly. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you can find us on any given afternoon off at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, but also right here at home. I'm sitting here looking at two easels in my office that I paint on because I also paint. And and uh, what do you do? Yeah, well, hey, the point is, you know, what do you do well, not how much do you do, but I yeah. try to do what I do well. But the thing is, yeah, I paint, and um, and and uh, 
my granddaughter and grandson sits up there and they paint too and they enjoy this and I've got mounds of clay and all this kind of creative material around but to me you know there, I really see the art in two aspects one is just as this creative outlet for my grandchildren and for me but the other is what when when they and when we are doing that what we are not doing you know what I'm not doing here is handing them an iPad what they are not doing is playing video games I really don't think little children should be deprived of a tactile hands-on relationship with the world in which they find themselves. And I, I love the fact that I'm able to provide that, that relationship, whether it's planting a garden and letting them pick the things they've grown, or whether it's sitting down and painting or going to a museum and seeing what other people have done. And, and that sort of gets right into the topic of the book, too, because, because I find that a lot of my friends who are atheists and agnostics actually are as spiritual as anybody else in the sense that when you have a sensitivity towards creativity and art, it isn't a question of religious belief, but it does have a huge impact on, on the richness and the fullness of the lives we, lives we live in. So the way I would put it is, look, you know, we're all biological machines, and, but inside those machines are spiritual beings which look out at the world and crave beauty and art and meaning. So you can dress that up in theological terms and call that faith, or you can just say, hey, this is the paradox of, of our quandary. You know, we're animals, and yet we, we certainly see the world in a, in a, as if we are individual personalities looking at it and we crave beauty. And so one of the great things I find about art is it's this tremendous way in which we can all come together, no matter what we say we believe, and really look at this great outpouring of this quest for meaning and beauty and truth in our lives through the creative process. And so the no nothing pleases me more than, you know, sitting here and writing and looking over and seeing one of my little grandchildren sitting, sometimes even still in their diapers, sitting up at a, an easel, daubing away with a paintbrush. And to them, this is just normal. This is what you do. And my question is, is well, why isn't that just normal for everybody? Why, why would anybody be deprived of that? And so, you know, I hate this idea, for instance, in modern education where there's supposed to be a computer on every desk and, and where we're teaching to the test as if somehow math and reading are the reason we've been put on this earth so we can compete with other economies and so on, instead of teaching to what I think is really important, which well, is Well, art, music, thought. and theater are the first things to go when there's any kind of an economic problem in the school. And uh, at least I see that in communities across the country. I'm sure you do, too, which I think is a big issue. I think the other thing is, and you mentioned this in the book about art, um, which I think is transformative, And uh, but I think another piece of it is that we tend to make people feel that if they that art somehow is intellectual, that you have to right. appreciate it in a certain way, you have to read the reviews, and you have to be able to talk about it in a certain way, rather than just, and I think you say this, going and experiencing it, walk into the Museum right. of Fine Arts or MoMA, or whatever kind, of, you know, and just feel it. And if you feel it, I mean, you mentioned Jackson Pollock. Um, right. I have stood in front of a Jackson Pollock painting and started to cry, and not knowing right. why, but that's... Yeah. Just because I feel the emotion, I guess that whatever it is, the chaos in his paintings, whatever. But yeah. or John Singer Sargent, you mentioned one of my favorites. So it's, but um, I don't think we we don't teach it and we don't allow it sort of in, culturally. I yeah, think. well, we have a kind of an anti-intellectual knee-jerk bias in this culture that goes all the way back to the Puritans when they were against theater and entertainments and this sort of thing on the one hand. But then there's a modern phenomena, too, that has nothing to do with that, which I think is a tragedy. And that is art used to be very aligned with craft. It was a working-class 
productivity. People started out as silversmiths, for instance, in the Italian Renaissance in Florence and Siena and places like that. They didn't begin in art schools or with university degrees. And I think it's really dreadful the way art has become a kind of a university subject on one hand, and the art schools have come into this idea that somehow that if you don't have a high intellectual concept, you can pitch in a in a in a paper that you're aiming at a foundation to get some nonprofit to support you or whatever it is, you know, art, art was the refuge of dyslexics who could draw, of working class people who were really good stone covers and suddenly they were sculptors and so forth. I don't like this kind of intellectual process which has deprived what I would call working stiffs of the approach to art, either to enjoy it or to be the people who make it. So you know, we have intellectualized this process. And of course, instead of making that accessible, it makes it inaccessible. Rather than just being able to look at something, we've got to be able to describe it or, or talk about it intellectually. And of course, it's crazy because when you look at music and even painting or any of the visual arts, the whole point of them is that they impact us on a kind of a nonverbal wow level that should be open to a three-year-old who can't read or a 90-year-old who's a PhD in philosophy. It's a level playing field and always should have been and always was. So I think it's a shame, really, that uh, between a kind of a knee-jerk North American anti-intellectual bias, which, hey, we're just all folks here, we drop our G's when we run for office so we sound like regular guys, you know, if we use a long word as a sports announcer on a radio or TV show, we got to go back and kind of laugh at ourselves because we don't want to seem highfalutin here. You know, we're all just folks. That kind of thing on one hand. But then on the other hand, the intellectual community, which has turned conceptual art into such a high and rarefied thing that if you don't read the long wall notice explaining it next to a couple of overturned armchairs in a gallery and you're not sure whether that's the artwork or whether the maid just hasn't finished cleaning yet, you've got to read the wall notice to know what the intellectual import is. That, too, I think, has really gotten in the way of our enjoyment of art and probably has hurt the funding of art as well because the, the, most people don't take that terribly, terribly seriously, and they're thinking, well, we're not, you know, we're, we're not going to get into that. So I, I think a good wander through a museum, whether it's modern art or, or something quite ancient, and let kids do what my dad always did, which is let me find the things that really interest me. And what I do with my granddaughter, Lucy, when we go down to the Museum of Fine Arts and we, we revisit Singer Sargent's painting of the Boyd daughters um, in Paris. You know, it's a 19th century piece of art. But then, you know, she runs downstairs and looks at a, a Dale Chiuli glass structure, which is totally abstract, kind of a Jackson Pollock in glass, if you were. And she loves that. And I never tell her, hey, one is modern and the other is old. We just look at it and let her bask in, in those creative things. So, you know, I think this is a great way to, to not only for children and families to do things, but I also think that it's just a terrible shame that we're all about commerce and, and the economy to the point where we're actually undermining the very reason why, you know, having an economy at all makes sense, which is to appreciate things that give a richness to life. So how do we change that? I, I Reading books like yours? Yeah, read books like mine, and 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 you know, if you're a grandparent, uh, I mean, seriously, this sounds facetious, but you know, don't don't just move to Florida because you're sick of shoveling snow if you're near your family, and if you're a person trying to bring children up, realize that that uh, you know this individualistic and Randian kind of way of looking at the world, where you're this great striver and you're going to go off and make money, and that's the biggest thing. You know, actually, community really means something, and so you know, when you just roll back a little 
further in not just our history, but world history, you find it was normal for grandparents to be helping to raise children. You know, families just just up stakes and split. So I think a little continuity in our lives, a little common sense, a little appreciation of, of, of spirituality, whether it comes packaged or as religion or not being the point, but when it comes to art, and then a, an emphasis on a kind of hands-on, unmediated, tactile relationship with the world. You know, hand a kid a paintbrush, take that stupid iPad away. Um, you know, don't stick them in front of a screen thinking that baby Einstein will make them smart. You know, walk around the kitchen table, let them nap in your arms listening to uh, Handel's water music. Let that be the environment. You know, I don't know why we keep thinking we've got to dumb everything down for children. I mean, why is a Disney jingle more, more suitable than Handel? Why do we think we've got to show them cartoons before they have really looked at people who could draw? It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, Well, and why do we, we take, don't... how about when we take uh, kids or children on vacation? Why do you go to Disney World or why do you go to some, uh, you know, park with right. roller coasters and all that stuff? Why don't you take them specifically to a museum? Why don't you go to the Clinton right. Museum and see the Chihuly exhibit, which he had beautiful glass exhibits? Why don't we, families don't do that, do they? Or they yeah, don't and, I, and I think actually one of the reasons why we have such trouble in so many different areas in terms of, behavior and incivility and all this other stuff, um, you know, that we've got problems with actually roots back to that. Because obviously a child who's being read, say, Beatrix Potter, as opposed to watching cartoons, is going to wind up with a totally different vocabulary and an ability to communicate. And then that has direct results in both human relationships, but also work. So even if you were just a horrible utilitarian that thought the whole purpose of life is money and power, you would still start out by trying to go to the best. And I think that the, the level of um, compromise where we just kind of slough these children off onto electronic gadgets and the rest of it, I mean, it is something I talk about in the book. And, yes. and it's something that on a daily basis I'm working on with my own grandchildren, feeling that, you know, I can't be there with them through their whole lives, but I can certainly help build a foundation, not just of love and companionship, but of access to good stuff that otherwise they might not get. But, Frank, don't you think also it doesn't have to be either or, like which is the premise of your book? You know, you can be an right. a- atheist and also believe in God. Well, you can also have an iPad and also go to the museum. You can do both. Yeah, of course you can. Yeah. But I think there's two different subjects here, and I just want to be clear. I am not anti-technology. You know, we're talking on a phone, and I'll be typing a next chapter of a new book I'm working on tomorrow morning on a computer. But there are such things as age-appropriate, and I'm not talking about language and nudity and all this moralistic nonsense. I'm talking about brain development and neural pathways. We do change our brains. And so when kids, you know, I'm talking little kids, you know, babies to three years old or to four years old, if their introduction to the world is really uh, deformed by forming neural pathways based on fast cut soundtracks, uh, you know, all the rest of it, they just are not going to have that same attention span and tactile relationship to how the world works. And, and actually, there are studies which very clearly show this. It's not a question of opinion on, oh, you know, moralistic stuff you should be reading instead of watching. It's that brains that are formed by uh, these electronic means. So, you know, we're not talking about the whole human race here or what somebody does when they're 8 or 9 or 10 or 12 years old. You know, Lucy's six now. We sit around and watch things she likes, but a lot of them have to do with actual culture stuff now because, again, having been introduced to 
certain things by me and by my wife, Jeannie. You know, her idea of a good time is, la- is watching Cinderella, but we're not talking Disney. We're talking Rossini's La Cintarella from a YouTube free right there online that you can watch the entire opera of La Cintarella from La Scala in Italy. So I'm sitting there reading her subtitles. She's hearing Italian. She loves the music. She loves the drama. She loves the story. And when it's all done, she wants to play that. So all of And I'd like to hear her conversations with her friends after that. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. Well, you know, and there, but the thing is, it's actually, there's a lot of parents who are trying to do something with their kids, and there's a lot of schools that are, you know, that's not, it's not uh, to, so isolated. I mean, there was a very ironic article a couple of years ago in 2011 in the New York Times about the chiefs of the, the, of, of the electronics industry and the high-tech industry in Silicon Valley who were sending their own children to a Waldorf school that has no computers, where everybody's handed a pencil on a pad of paper, and they're not even allowed to have, you know, computer stuff at home. So there are plenty of people even in the tech business who, when it comes to their own children's early childhood development, I'm not talking about older than that, but early childhood development. But are we still careful. talking about the elite? I mean, they are the elite in the tech business. It's still, it's, you know, the people who are well-educated and, you know, whether yeah, it's... Yeah, but I'll make a prediction, and, and you know, um, uh, and that is, I'll bet you that 20 years from now, we look back on this kind of unthinking fanaticism of, uh, of electronic gizmos with young children. Remember, I'm talking about young childhood development. And we're going to think of the way everybody thought it was fine and did it in the same way we look at smoking today. It'll just be, hey, they didn't know any better than that. But you mark my words, it will not last forever because eventually people are going to figure out, hey, listen, a child messing around in the dirt, planting a few seeds for a garden or using a hammer and nails or watching their grandfather work on something or sitting down and painting a picture or, or going for a walk, this is the way to start life out, not staring at a little screen while all the decisions are made for your neural pathways by people who put together all this fast-flying imagery to keep you mesmerized. It's obviously count- intuitively nonsense. So I don't think it's going to take much of an argument beyond some of the studies that are being made now and the fact that this is just not helping kids. And when you look at the number of people who are on all kinds of prescription drugs now trying to cope with attention deficit and all the rest of it, obviously, uh, you know, you can't place all that at the door of the electronic tech industry. But, you know, there's something that's come unhinged. We have to say goodbye. This has been great. It went by, for me anyway, very quickly. And I do want to mention, because I want uh, listeners to know the book, Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God, Frank Schaefer. how to give love, create beauty, and find peace. You can buy it at bookstores online. I bought it for my Kindle. It's out there. Uh, great book. Thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on. This was lovely. This was great. We are going to have to say goodbye, and I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 